when Isaiah preached between 740 and 700 BC, uh, that's a long time ago, he preached to people whose uh, hearts were dull, whose ears were full of wax, and whose eyes were half shut. And I'd encourage you to have soft hearts, ears that are listening, and eyes that are wide open. And I mean that not lightly. Um, Seriously, we need to listen to this stuff. It's powerful stuff, as you'll see when we read it. Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. A sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed up or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us with a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the dealing of convocations I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself and my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first 
and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Well, serious stuff. Now, let me uh, just uh, spend a little bit of time at the beginning getting our bearings in this book. And if you turn up to the middle of your service sheet, you'll see one or two headings that'll help us. Now, Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters. We're not going to tackle it all. We're going to take chapters 1 to 12 over eight Sundays. Some of us may be really familiar with this material. There are two people here doing PhDs on Isaiah. I'll refer you to them if you have any questions. Most of us, I think, will not be awfully familiar with this kind of Bible material. Apart from at Christmas, when we pick up texts from a book like Isaiah... For example, chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. Or at Easter, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and so forth. Now, it's great that we turn to a book like Isaiah at Christmas and Easter. These uh, wonderful nuggets of gold that we dig up. But if you go back to the bit of Isaiah from which these texts were dug up and see them in their context, they are sharper and far more powerful. Now, Isaiah is in the last section of the Old Testament called the Prophets. It uh, begins with Isaiah and ends with Malachi. Let me just show you how chunky it is, okay? It's a big bit of our Bibles. And therefore, just logically, we need to, to some extent at least, get our heads around this kind of literature. We kind of steer clear of it. We're good at New Testament letters and Gospels. But this kind of stuff we steer clear of because, I think, for two reasons. One, it's straight line and hard to hear and wonderful, as we'll see. And it's different. Different means difficult. It's not. It's just different. And hopefully will benefit from studying it. There are four big prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and 12 little prophets. Big and little by length, not by importance of message. Isaiah heads up the queue. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. You will not learn from any other book more about God than from the book of Isaiah. It's a wonderful wonderful book. I hope I can convince you of that. Now, what does prophecy mean? These books are prophetic books. Prophecy means telling what will happen in the future. And so a prophetic book looks forward from the time it was written to the future. Isaiah prophesied or spoke in 
the period 740 to 700 BC. That's a long time ago, 2,700 years. And we live and study this book 2,700 years later. And therefore, a book written in 740 to 700 BC that is prophecy, and therefore, by definition, looks forward to events in the future. Many of these events described in this book, we look back to see fulfilled. So, for example, one of the big uh, events that the book of Isaiah looks forward to is the exile of God's people into Babylon, Daniel, the book of the exile. And, of course, we look back to these events. They were in 605 to 539 or so BC, a hundred years after Isaiah uh, prophesied. And we look back also to the most significant event that Isaiah prophesied, that is the coming of the Messiah, for unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9. We look back to these events having been fulfilled. Much of what Isaiah spoke about that would happen in the future has already happened. Just turn forward to the very end of the book if you've got a Bible, or type something into your phone, whatever you do with your phone. Isaiah chapter 64, 65, 66, just look at the headings in your Bibles. They speak of a new heavens and a new earth, chapter 65, verse 17. Chapter 66, verse 7, they speak about Jerusalem, Zion. What is Isaiah talking about? Isaiah is pointing forward in 700 BC, not simply to the return after the exile, not simply to the coming of Jesus Christ, not simply to his death, to his resurrection, but the return of Jesus at the very end of time. The end of Isaiah is like the end of the book of Revelation. So, Isaiah is a prophetic book that looks forward to events in the future. And if you could sort of sum up all this pointing forward stuff, what it does is that it tells us that God has a plan, an inflexible plan. Not inflexible in that God is inflexibly stubborn, but a plan that is good and perfect and right and true, and God will not depart from that plan. Now, immediately that is both challenging. God will not depart from his plan, so we should not either. And encouraging. God has a plan. Nothing phases God. The Western world today, in its retreat into secularism, does not phase God. God's plan will happen. God has a plan. And part of our study of this great prophecy is to get our heads around what that plan is. Let me warn you, though, against something. Our job in studying Isaiah is not to have a chart sort of on the screen or, or like a chessboard where we work out how all the different bits of the jigsaw fit together. It's not hard, I think, to work out what God's plan is. He prophesies judgment, exile, Babylon, exodus from exile, the coming of Jesus, God's everlasting kingdom, his death, his resurrection, the return of Jesus, Zion, the city of our God at the end of time. That's the plan. And getting your heads around the plan is only part of the reason we are studying Isaiah. The other reason is this. And it's the kind of real-time, immediate message of Isaiah. 
Whether you are listening to Isaiah as a preacher in 700 BC in Jerusalem, or whether 2,700 years later in a church in Edinburgh, you're listening to somebody preach out of Isaiah, the same urgent call from God through his prophet comes to us. And that is, God has a plan. Yes, get your head around that. And here's the call. Trust me. Obey me. Stick close to me. Love me. Don't depart from me. Listen. Luke. And uh, what Isaiah will do for us as a church and as individuals is search our hearts and encourage our hearts. He'll shine by God's Spirit a torchlight into the very heart of our church family, into our meetings, Sundays, prayer meetings, elders' meetings, small group meetings. He'll shine a light into your minister's study, into all of our hearts. And that light will shine and it will encourage us and strengthen us and steady us and it will expose our sin also. And it will shake us to the soles of our feet and build us up to the top of our heads and turn us around and tell us be strong. And it will speak security and safety to us. Or it will say, you're not safe, you're not secure. Now, if you could put these two bits of Isaiah's message together, the plan and the immediacy of his message, something like this. God has a plan, and as his people, we are to trust and obey him. God has a plan, and as his people, we are to trust and obey him. Here's a question from after service one. Uh, these are always discouraging questions because people didn't hear what you thought they were going to hear. Okay, here's the question. Did you mean that God has a plan for my life? I'd be very, very wary and cautious of that kind of language. God has a plan for the world and for humanity and his church. And our primary responsibility is to get on board with that plan. And once we do so, God's plan for my life begins to work itself out. God's plan for my life and your life is never to depart from his plan. God is never going to say to us, Okay, I'm going to bypass that stuff in my plan for your plan. He's never going to do that. He might bring us back. He often does. But he might let us drift for years and years and years away from him. Now, over this uh, series, God is going to deeply challenge us and deeply reassure us. And he'll do this. He'll do this. If we do not trust and obey God, whether individually, and we'll look at all sorts of aspects of what that means for me and you as individuals. If we do not trust and obey him, we have no right to feel secure and safe. If we do trust and obey him, our safety and security is guaranteed. The people of God in Isaiah's day did not listen to God. In chapter 6, we will read that their hearts were heavy, their ears clogged up with wax, and their eyes uh, blind. God gives you great illustrations when you preach a sermon. Yesterday, we took our children to Dundee Olympia. It is 
the Zion of swimming pools. And I was the only person aged 46 to go down the yellow slide. Even the person who said, it's time to go, so I looked at me thinking, these are for young people. What does a swimming pool do to you? Did it for me? Yes, I haven't been swimming for ages. It unclogs your ears. Now, I want to warn you and warn myself, do not drift off to sleep. Do not stick earplugs in. Do not let your hearts be hard. And do not let your eyes flutter shut because you're weary, because you're listening not to me. You're listening to God's prophet and God himself. So let's pray that God will do that to us. Father, we pray that as we study this great book, our hearts will not be hard but soft. Our ears will not be clogged up with wax but listening keenly. And our eyes will be wide open to see our own lives and to see you, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, let me set the scene for us. And uh, I... I, I, I can apologize for the, the kind of stuff we've got to get our heads around. For some of us, this will be familiar. For others, getting our heads around biblical history will be new. And do bear with us as we do that. Uh, we'll come back at that over the weeks. Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of uh, Judah. Somebody once said that only ministers, only preachers come to church on a Sunday thinking that people will be interested in the Hittites or Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Who are these people? Well, Isaiah prophesied in the period 740 to 700, marked by the reign of four kings, Uzziah, who died 740, the day that Isaiah began his ministry, Jotham, his son, Uzziah's son, and then two kings, Ahaz, a good king, a bad king rather, and Hezekiah, a good king. Bit of historical context. And Isaiah would have preached what we read here in Isaiah chapters 1 to 66 over the period of these two kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And it's recorded and collected for us in this book. And it's a prophecy or a message concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Let me explain who Judah and Jerusalem are. When God led his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, he led them to a promised land some 500 years or so before Isaiah spoke. He led them to a promised land. That land was called Israel. Israel simply means the people of God. Israel means the people of God. And in the Old Testament, they were in a land called Israel. They are judges. Remember, we studied judges. After the judges came the kings. They had Saul, then David, then Jonathan, David's son. After Jonathan, Israel, the people of God in the land, split in half. There was a top bit, Israel, with Samaria, its capital, and a bottom bit, Judah, with Jerusalem, its capital. Isaiah's message is to Judah and Jerusalem, the southern part of the kingdom. And of course, after Solomon, the north bit and the south bit had lots of kings, some good ones, some bad ones. Isaiah ministers to Judah, 740 to uh, 700 BC. And right in the middle of that time, 722 BC, up in the north, Israel was about to be sledgehammered by the Assyrians. 
the end of Israel, that bit of God's kingdom, because of their turning away from God. Now, picture the scene. Isaiah, with all that going in the north, Israel falling to the Assyrians, is speaking to the southern bit, Judah and Jerusalem. What would you be thinking, potentially, had you been sitting in Jerusalem or Judah? You would be standing six feet above contradiction, looking north at all the bad stuff up there and all the stuff that was happening to them because they had turned away from the Lord. And Isaiah turns the spotlight on you. And he says, Judah, Jerusalem, you're just the same. That's the context of Isaiah. Now, I think that uh, God's people still today, as then, think that, I mean, think about it there. There you were in Jerusalem or in the temple, and this mighty city built because God had a people, and he had a place, Jerusalem, where they were, and he had a temple where God met with his people. And you're sitting there, you're looking around at these beautiful buildings, these beautiful walls, this great institution, and you were thinking, Whatever we do, whatever we do, there is no way on earth God is going to bring these walls down. There is no way on earth this temple is going to fall to the ground. I think we would have thought that, and we still do to some extent. Institutions, reputations, history, names, what God may have done in the past. If God's people then and now turn away from God and his word and do not obey him, they have no right to feel secure and every reason to be fearful then And now, he brought Jerusalem to its knees. He can bring a church to its knees. He can bring a church and a country to its knees. He can bring us as individuals to our knees. If we do not trust and obey him, we have no right to feel secure. Let me flip the coin. We keep flipping coins in Isaiah. If we do trust and obey him, not simply that our security is kind of promised, guaranteed, It's a very simple equation. If you do not trust and obey me, God says you have no right to feel secure. Your history does not give you security. Your name, your reputation, your institution, your assemblies, whatever it is. But if you do trust and obey me, you have nothing to fear because God of heaven is with you. He will not depart from you. God can bring a church to its knees. God can bring an individual to their knees. It's an ambiguous phrase, perhaps. It's meant to be. And that's how Isaiah works. As God brings us to our knees, as he brings me as a minister to my knees for stuff I've got to sort out in my life, he will only do so in order to lift up my head and lift up my heart and turn to Jesus for cleansing and healing. He will not bring me to my knees ever with the intent to leave me on my knees. He never does that. If he brings me to my knees, I've got to look up. And with a repentant heart, turn to him. If I don't, he'll leave me on my knees. But he wants me to look up. And he wants us to do that as a church. Reputations, visible appearances of power and status mean nothing. One of the greatest dangers, I think, in the Western world is that we spend the next 30 years coming to terms with the reality of how things truly are spiritually. And we keep saying, either out loud or in our hearts, God will never, ever, ever dismantle all that heritage and stuff that he has blessed us with in the past. He will. He is. He is. Now, let's uh, look at verses 2 to 9. You'll see on the sheet there, 
judgment and exile for the people of God. Now, we get back in time now to Isaiah prophesying to Judah and Jerusalem in 740 to 700 BC. Back in time to what's happening then in that historical context. And if you've got your head around the history a bit, if, if just here's a simple way to get into it. The people of God then were strangely like the people of God now, fickle like us. Nothing's really changed. And the language describes, verses 2 to 9, a broken relationship with God. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me. My people do not understand. And the point that Isaiah is making is that when we do not trust and obey God, it's not that we do not trust and obey Him or we depart from His Word, is that we depart from Him and our relationship with Him. In the end of the day, it's not about obedience. It's about marriage to God. It's about relationship with Him. And now they no longer know their God and have forsaken their Lord. They are utterly estranged. And I think it's fair to say, and of course only God knows the true state of every heart, years of drift and indifference, years of turning away from God in disobedience, years of turning away from his word without any evidence of repentance shows itself in the end people who consider themselves to be the people of God who say, I am, I am a Christian or I am somebody in God's people and they are not. They do not in truth know God. And God willing, that's not going to be a light that he shines into our church family, but he may do. There's a plea from God in verse 5. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The answer, verse 6, because the whole body is sick. Raw wounds, not pressed out or bind up or softened with oil. Open open sores. Open sores in the church in Isaiah's day. Open sores, I guess, in the church in our day. And I guess our temptation is to take the spotlight and kind of turn it somewhere else in our country. Let's turn it back on us. Verses 7 to 9 point us, I think, forward in time to the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar and the exile of the people of God into Babylon. So what he's saying to Judah then is he's saying, look, look, you've turned away from me, you've turned away from me, and then boom, forward in time, a hundred years, this is what's going to happen. Verses 7 to 9, your country lies desolate. And prophets work like this, kind of future perfect. Not that it will, it gets forward in time. Your country lies desolate. There's an inevitability to this. Your cities are burned with fire and your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field. Have any of you ever seen a cucumber field in Edinburgh? No. The best uh, analogy to this is like a, you know, up by Blackford Hill. Some of you will know Blackford Hill. There's a whole lot of allotments. Apologies if you've got an allotment in Blackford Hill. Most of them have little shacks in them little tumble-down, little wooden sheds. This mighty citadel, this mighty Jerusalem, this church with a wonderful reputation and a wonderful history in a nation or in a city or in a community, big or small, 
is like a broken down shed in an allotment. It's nothing. It's gone. But God preserves a remnant. There is always a remnant of God's people who have kept trusting, kept obeying him. In spite of the pressure, intense pressure often, if the Lord of hosts, verse 9, had not left us a few, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. From this remnant, the Lord would build his people again. Now let me ask us a question as a church. Where would we rather be as the people of God? Where would we rather be as Chamas Church as individual believers? Let me personalize that. Where would you and I rather be in our life in relation to some stuff that we battle with perhaps? There's a right turn and there's a wrong turn. We know what the right turn is, but the wrong turn is easier to take. There is more pressure on us to take it. There's a desire of our hearts and there is a light understanding of our relationship with the Lord Jesus that says it will be all right. Where would you rather be? Staying faithful, trusting, and obedient to God when it's really, really hard, which it often is, or disobeying God, which is often really, really easy, thinking that God will not judge us. Well, the message of Isaiah to us is that if we do not trust and obey God, we have no right to feel safe and secure. And if we do trust and obey Him, our security is guaranteed. And sometimes we feel there is every reason not to trust and obey God. We are afraid. The challenges are too great. The pressures are too intense. The heat is too hot. And the desires of our hearts are too strong. Let me say to you, as your minister, if you are at a fork in the road in some issue in your life, whether it's relationships or whether it's decisions, or whatever it happens to be. You know the details of your life as I know mine. And let me say to you that what I preach to you as your minister, I preach straight back at myself into my own heart, and I do. That's not a casual thing that preachers say. You have no idea how God bears down the weight of his word on the person that spends 20 hours preparing it before they preach it. Don't go down that fork, because if you do, you have no right to presume on the security in God. You just don't. Go down this fork and your security is guaranteed. That's what God says. You've nothing to fear. God is with you. God will be with you. He is a God of promise, of covenant commitment to his faithful people. Now, verses 10 to 17 give us some insights into the reasons for God's judgment Let me just uh, preface that by something else. The end of the first section, 1 to 9, he says, look, Judah, you've, you've, you've slipped so far from me, and the end of that process will be exile. Jerusalem's going to fall, and the temple's going to fall. All this institutional stuff is going to fall. When did it fall? 100 years later. It does not happen overnight. It lingers on and looks strong. And if you stand and make the right decision at the fork in the road, it may not feel like it's proved right to you for a long time, but it is. Why? Because God said and you did. Because God's word says and you obeyed. 
safe. Now, why did God's judgment come to Judah and Jerusalem? That's uh, verses 10 to 17. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 13, bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It's strong stuff, isn't it? All the stuff they did, all the religious stuff these, the people of God did then or, or churches do today. And let me turn the spotlight that you have turned and I have turned out there into our country and somebody else back in on us. Swing it round. He's saying, I kind of see your church meetings. I'm looking in now. I can see whose minds are a thousand miles away. I can see the preachers standing behind lectures going through the motions who are more devoted to the work of the Lord than to the Lord himself. I can see churches with brilliant programs. Reach, build, train, send. I can see churches with regular new members and baptisms and sending people into this country and around the world as mission partners. And in truth, I'm not listening because it's empty. Let me flip the coin. It is not empty. It is sincere. These people are struggling, but they love me, and they're seeking to stand by me. They have no reason to be afraid. Keep flipping the coin back and forward. And we Scots, we're not all Scots here, we Scots in the room need to flip the coin onto the promises of grace because we flip the coin onto the warnings of judgment more easily. Always when God brings us to our knees, we find when we're on our knees, corporately or individually, an invitation to turn to Jesus for mercy and grace and restoration and healing. What Isaiah is describing, the reason for God's judgment, religion without substance, ritual without reality, faith without obedience. You know, you read these phrases in Bible commentaries. What Isaiah is describing is religion without substance, ritual without reality, faith without obedience, and boom, they're over our heads. What he means by that is stuff that we do, we gather around the Lord's table, that is a ritual that we perform, and we don't even listen to God when we do it. Our minds are away. When we sing, we sing without sincerity and heart and love. And we don't obey. You see why a loving Heavenly Father wants this stuff from His people, doesn't He? He wants churches to be alive and thriving and real and authentic. He wants to bust the conspiracy theory in churches. Here's a conspiracy theory. You hear me often say that people are always fine. Nobody is ever fine. I'm not ever fine. Nobody's ever fine. Let's bust another conspiracy theory that church communities are more godly than they really are. We're just not. God knows that. He wants us to realize that. Now, verses 21 to 31. The final section. 
we might describe as a tale of two cities. Remember the section 1, verses 2 to 9, judgment, that judgment will realize in the end in exile. That's when God's people went into Babylon, when everything crumbled down. There's a remnant, though. And then the second section, 10 to 17, why has that happened? Because you've, you've broken your marriage vows inside Connect. Don't read it now. There's a picture of weddings, and I've written something about marriage vows. Why have you gone into exile? Why have you come under judgment? Because you've broken your marriage vows, God says with me. That's the best way to think about it. It's fidelity to God. And yet, in verses 21 to 31, we get a wonderful sight of the future and God's grace. I will turn my hand against you, verse 25, and smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy, and I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And what God is prophesying through his prophet is that after exile, there will be exodus again. And that exodus will have burned up like a furnace smelts impurities out of pure metal, my people. So the exile to Babylon will come to an end. They'll be back out. But he's not just talking about that. What he's talking about in verses 21 to 31 is Zion, the city of God, at the very end of time. And he puts down there in 2,700 years ago, 700 BC, I will build a people to myself when my son not only comes, but comes again, a glorious city of Zion. Now, there is a world of a difference, my friends, between God saying to us, it will be all right in the end, and it will be all right if you do not trust and obey me now. That is not the same thing. Do not presume on God's security if we depart from his path. If you are on his path of trust and obedience, however hard it is, however uncertain it is, whatever big questions are yet to be resolved, that is the right place, the safe place to be. God will rebuild his city and some in the end. God has a plan. Now let me finish as we come to the Lord's table with verses 18 through 20. Over uh, the weeks, the message of Isaiah, you folks really hot in here? Uh, it gets hotter by the degree, by the minute. It just brings Isaiah to life. It's like being in a furnace, being smelted. It's warm. Now, Isaiah will come home to us. As, and now, you feel this now. You know this now. It'll come home to us in deeply challenging ways. If you're a Scot, you're going to hear these challenging things. I hope if you're a true Christian, you're going to hear the, 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 the challenge of God's prophet to the very soles of your feet. I hope as elders, we're going to hear the challenge of God's prophet about our meetings, about our church gatherings, about our prayer meetings. And as I will deeply challenge us, but deeply reassure us, there'll be stuff we need to change, but God will tell us how. Now, let me underscore this with three lines and an orange highlighter pen as well. How do 
we let the Spirit of God change us, not ever by treating Isaiah as a great big stick to beat our backs that we might become better Christians or a better church. The conviction of sin, which Isaiah seeks under God to generate, is only, and ever was only, and ever will be only, designed to move his hearers to cast themselves, not upon rules, but upon the grace and mercy of God, or literally to cast themselves upon the person of Jesus, his work, his death, his resurrection. Sometimes I think we get confused when we come to the Lord's table. Why do we need to keep doing it again? After all, if we become Christians, we're fully forgiven, and so we are. We do not come to the Lord's table to receive another little bit of forgiveness in terms of getting right with God. We've got it all when we trusted the Lord Jesus. We come to the Lord's table because we do not, if you're anything like me, and we do not as a church, if you're anything like every other church, trust and obey God with a fidelity that is glued to Him. That's why we come. We come not to be reminded of the rules. We come to be reminded of Jesus that we might lay hold of him, that we might appreciate what he died for, what he bled for, what his body was broken for. We come for this reason. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now. God says, let us reason. Let us reason around the cross to which these elements point. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If you're down that path of disobedience, then on your knees, look up, and God will make your path straight. He will lead you back. He will say, comfort, comfort my people. I will make straight paths for you. Your sins shall be as white as snow, though they are red like crimson. They shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that an interesting, straightforward phrase? If, then, if, then. God has a plan. If you trust and obey, then you will be safe and secure. You will eat the food of the land. If not, you cannot presume on my security and my safety. Why can you not presume on my security and my safety? Why? Well, because God is true and pure and good and holy and sovereign and big and mighty, and He is God. Why? Part two, because he wants to bring you and I to our knees that he might then lead us on straight paths again. It's the nature of the God that we worship. Now, my plea to you is to wrestle with Isaiah with me as you did with Romans 8. It makes all the difference. If you've got wax in your ears, go swimming. Let Isaiah unplug them. Don't let your minds drift away on a Sunday. If you miss a Sunday, listen online because you're listening to God online, not me. If I depart from what Isaiah says, you come up and tell me, Isaiah didn't say that, God didn't say that, why are you saying that? If you've got a drum to beat, you tell me. Unstop your ears. If your eyes are droopy, prop them up with matchsticks. Look, look, look in, look out. And led Isaiah, what will he do to us? Isaiah, what will he do? He'll, if we listen and if we look, 
and if our hearts are soft and warm and not dull and hard, he will make us into a church that no longer lives in the conspiracy of evangelical churches, that we are fine and godly and okay, because we're not. Not especially different from anybody else, but just especially normal. And God will breathe the fire of His Spirit through our hearts, corporately and individually, and our marriage to God will tighten and deepen. And if we find ourselves on the road uncertain, not knowing which way to turn, left, right, up, down, whatever it is, then God will say to us, it's fine. It's just fine, because I'm God, and you're with me. You're trusting. You're obeying me. You've nothing to fear. You've nothing to fear. You've nothing to fear. Why would you be afraid? God is not afraid of secular drift in the West. not phasing God. He needs it not to phase us also. Trust and obey. And as we come to the Lord's table, let this kind of cleansing work begin in us now. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that uh, we would listen and heed this uh, wonderful message of Isaiah. We pray that it would shake us to the very soles of our feet and might even drop us to our knees. And when we're down on our knees, we pray that you would lift us up, not with a new set of rules, not with a rod to beat our backs, but with an invitation to turn to the Lord Jesus and lay hold of him and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. Draw us back. Set us on a straight path if we have strayed. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his sake. Amen.